Okay. All right, well, good evening. I think we're ready to get started for tonight. Welcome to our Wednesday evening Bible study. And after a little bit of time off, we're starting tonight with our new series, Into the Doctrines of Grace. And like I said, we've got a little handout. Some The binders are coming. Maybe next week we'll have those together as we start getting to the cycle of having some handouts the week before with some homework involved for those who want to look up some verses, do some study on your own. In fact, you have a blank page today, not much. If you want to keep it, though, you can three-hole punch it when the binders come. You can have your own little section of notes. But here we're beginning this this study in the doctrines of grace, trying to make this an in-depth yet accessible look at the doctrines of grace, often known by the label of Calvinism, as opposed to what is known as Arminianism. Now, the study of the doctrines of grace, they're all about the doctrines of God and man, sin and salvation. And more specifically, the whole debate between Calvinism and Arminianism can be boiled down to one of responsibility. Namely, who is responsible for man's salvation? Both agree that man is in need of salvation. Both agree that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the sole source of our salvation. So that's good. The question is, who's responsible for bringing that salvation to bear on a sinner's life? Now, also good, no one doubts that God is involved somehow. The question really becomes, how much? Is God alone responsible for our salvation? Or does God work with man to bring about his salvation? Does man play a decisive part in his own salvation? Or does the work of saving sinners belong to God from start to finish? Furthermore, does God actually save people or does he merely enable people to save themselves? How much human effort is involved in salvation? That's the question we're asking here, responsibility. How responsible is God for our salvation? How responsible are are, are we for our own salvation? That's the essential divide between Calvinism and Arminianism. Both are seeking to understand God's role and man's role in salvation. So that's your basic framework for for the debate. And the goal of this study is to explore this debate and thereby to explore God's role and man's role in our salvation, figure out what the Bible says about that. Now, as we ease into this and I start to hopefully familiarize you with some of the the key terms, the the key figures, characters in, in the discussion, off the bat, there are two theological terms that you might want to get to know if you were with us last Sunday night. You learned one of them. They are monergism and synergism. I normally don't throw out a lot of theological terms unless we're doing a study like this. In this case, it's useful to know a few. Monergism, in case you're a note taker, that's M-O-N-E-R-G-I-S-M, monergism, and then synergism. Monergism, these are two opposing perspectives. Monergism is from the Greek, meaning essentially to work alone. It basically means that the belief that God works alone to bring about our salvation. It's his salvation. God is the active, the sole active agent. And do you think monergism is associated with Calvinism or Arminianism? Calvinism, Calvinism, that is correct. So monergism is associated with Calvinism, the belief that God works alone to bring about our salvation. Synergism, spelled S-Y-N-E-R-G-I-S-M. That's from the Greek meaning to work together, essentially to work together. And that's the belief that God works together with us to bring about our salvation. And as now you can guess, 
that synergism is associated with Arminianism. And again, as you guys know, throughout this study, you can all stop, throw up a hand for any questions or comments as you see fit. So this fundamental difference in how God and man cooperate in salvation or don't cooperate trickles down, though, and affects many other areas of theology, leading to other differences. So if you start with this fundamental difference of who is responsible for our salvation, is it God alone or God and man together, working together somehow, that difference leads to many other differences in other areas of theology down the line, such as, for example, the condition of man. Is man basically good or basically evil? Does man have a fallen nature? Is man enslaved to sin? Does man have a free will? Is man able to choose God or not? You have differences in predestination. Does God predestine some to salvation or not? If so, how does God choose? Does God choose according to his own will or does he choose according to man's will? Differences in the atonement, different understandings of what happened on the cross, what did the death of Jesus really accomplish for us, how does the death of Jesus impact our salvation, and then the question of for whom did Jesus die, only the elect or true believers, or for the whole world, every single individual on the planet, if that question. It also trickle down to differences in God's grace, what role does God's grace play in our salvation? Does his grace overpower our will and draw us to him, or can his grace be resisted? Can you fight back or oppose God's influence in your life? And then finally, differences in security. Can believers lose their salvation? Or as the saying goes, once saved, always saved. Is that true? Is it possible for true believers to fall away from the faith, or will they necessarily persevere until the end because God preserves them? Now, some of these questions might sound familiar to you. These and more all kind of funnel back to that fundamental divide over responsibility and salvation. God alone or God and man working together. Monergism, synergism. And again, it's, it's not critical that you know these terms, but it also doesn't hurt. Add a few more words to your, your mind's dictionary. It helps you understand the discussion a little bit better. And today there are two distinct systems of theology that would answer all these questions differently. Again, you know them, Calvinism and Arminianism. And I know you've, you've heard these terms before, but if you're like most, you have a vague understanding of what they mean. In fact, I solicited some of you all with some, some questions last time to gauge your understanding, and, and pretty good, but there's always some who just have a fuzzy understanding. You've heard the terms, you know like who's on what side maybe, but don't fully know what they believe or, or certainly why they believe certain things. A lot of confusion, a lot of questions. And so that's partly why we're doing this study, to, to bring clarity, to answer questions. But primarily to study the Bible to find out what Scripture really says. So what does the Bible teach about God's role and our role in our salvation? And we also want to explain why it matters as time goes on too. Like, well, who cares? Well, what's the big deal? That's a valid question to any study. So what? Well, we'll answer that and show you how practical uh, the conclusion is when we get there. But that's also come today with, with this first lesson. We really just want to set the stage and introduce you to the main characters, main terms, and main beliefs. So the goal of this first lesson is to help you get better acquainted with this entire discussion. 
by more or less introducing you to these two schools of thought, Calvinism and Arminianism. And I think a good way to do that is by some historical background. Where'd they come from? We know it today, as it stands today, where did it all come from? And so with this first lesson, we're going to take that look into history to, to set up the discussion and find out where this debate came from. But we're actually not going to start with Calvin or Arminius. Those guys are a pair of 17th century theologians after whom these theologies are named after, right? Calvinism, Arminianism. Because the debate doesn't start with them. It's kind of named after them, but it, it doesn't start with them. It actually goes back much further to the 4th and 5th centuries AD to another pair of theologians named Augustine and Pelagius. Maybe you've heard of these names, maybe not. And both Calvinism and Arminianism, as we know them today, they're rooted in the past. So the goal of our first lesson is to better understand, at least, you know, first off, what people believe today by tracing the historical roots of the debate. Just, like I said, setting the stage, understanding where the lines are drawn, what people believe today, and a good way of doing that is just going back in time, seeing how it all began and how we got to where we are today, what, why we believe this, how these schools of theology developed, for, for whatever it's worth. Again, our end goal is to get to Scripture, what the Bible says, but we'll start with this historical framework. How did this debate originate? And tonight we'll begin with not Calvin, not Arminius, but Augustine and Pelagius. So this first lesson will be a two-parter, this Wednesday and next Wednesday, the history section. I'm going to ask for your, your guys' feedback on some of what you would want to learn in a study like this. Several of you mentioned the historical element, just understanding the history and, and where it all came from. And so that's why I've kind of beefed this up to be a two-parter, to give you a double dose of both the, the distant history with Augustine and then a little bit closer with Calvin. So we'll come back next week to focus on Calvin and Arminius, and that will really get us to the present as well. But no, don't neglect this first part because it really sets the stage, and you might be surprised how much how familiar it sounds. Uh, as we will learn, pretty much everything Calvin said, Augustine said first, and then others did as well. It doesn't mean he's not relevant, but let's go back to the to the beginning of, of the debate, the debate rather when it got. You could say solidified. So here we'll begin part one of this historical background, Augustine and Pelagius. Augustine and Pelagius. And we'll begin with taking a look at Augustine. You might know him as St. Augustine, as Catholics call him, St. Augustine of Hippo, which was a city in North Africa. He was born Aurelius Augustinus in 354 AD in modern-day Algeria. Now, side note, I've always said Augustine. Some say Augustine. I, I really don't know which is right. I've just always heard it, Augustine. I, I, I like Augustine. It just rolls off my tongue better. <laughs> so I'm sticking with Augustine. It could be Augustine. I don't know. And you know what? You don't know either. So <laughs> <laughs> if I didn't even say it, you wouldn't even have thought about it. So, But just to let you know. So he was a North African theologian. You might not know this, but in that era, North Africa was really a center for Christian thinking and theology. There's Rome, North Africa, and the East. He studied in Carthage, then left for Rome in 383. He went to Milan to advance his career in rhetoric and government. 
Then in 386 in Milan, that's when he had a dramatic conversion to Christianity. Very famous account and well-known as well. His father was a pagan. His mother was a devout Christian, one of these new Christians. And she constantly prayed for him. And so he grew up knowing about the Christian faith, the Christian worldview, and struggling with somewhat believing these things to be true, yet he was a, a very worldly, we would say today, a very licentious lifestyle, debauchery. He had a child out of wedlock, just going down that road. And he battled guilt for his lifestyle. Finally, God broke him down. One afternoon, and this is by his own autobiography, he was just feeling the weight of his sin. He was with some friends. He just went up to be alone and was just in tears, really. Uh, guilt over his sin and his choices. And then he heard a child's voice saying, pick up and read, pick up and read. And he didn't know if it was, like, if it was real. It was just like a voice from God. He, he couldn't see any kids around. He looked around for a little bit. He didn't know. But anyway, he, it convicted him and he ran back to where his friends were. And he had a Bible and he, he picked up his Bible and read right where it just happened to open. You know, one of those stories where someone like puts their finger and whatever it's there. And but it was a relevant passage. He opened to Romans 13, 13 through 14, which says, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And that was such a relevant verse for exactly the struggle going on in his heart that the Lord used it to just fully and finally break him down. And where he submitted his life to Christ by, by faith. There's a lot more to the story. And if you want to, if you're curious, you want to learn more about his conversion story. It's actually pretty lengthy and a, a great read. You can read Augustine's Confessions, which I have here. It's actually, a, it's not too long and it really is a, a great read. It's his autobiography of his salvation, his conversion event. And it's, a, it's really good still. Well, he returned home to North Africa, and in 391, he was pressed into service as a clergyman of, uh, in Hippo. By 395, he became the bishop of Hippo, which today you could say like lead pastor. Now, he served there the rest of his life, and he died in AD 430. Augustine is known as the greatest Latin father of the church. By Latin father, it just means Western the guys in Rome and North Africa were typically called the Latin fathers because they primarily spoke and wrote in Latin, as opposed to the Greek fathers, the guys in the East, they wrote and spoke mostly in Greek. But he, he was a big deal. He is regarded as the most significant and influential theologian after Paul basically, second to the Apostle Paul when it comes to what he wrote. And, and basically, his shaping of Christianity, what he wrote, shaped Western Christianity forever. He's a prolific author. His uh, magnum opus I have here as well, it's called The City of God, only 1,100 pages in, you know, 10 font, if you want to read it too. This was his last, I think his last work, The City of God, um, very big into what would later be uh, all millennial theology. Uh, that's just, he wrote a lot and uh, through his writings, like I said, really shaped Western Christianity. As a just kind of a fun personal side note, I became a Christian my freshman year of college, as many of you know, at Berkeley, UC Berkeley. 
And uh, studying engineering in the, the Berkeley Library, they're called the Stacks. It's five stories underground. You just go underground for you know several stories. Huge library. I think it's the third largest in the U.S. after Library of Congress and I think Harvard's library. So they've got every book. They just store every book. And so I would just be doing homework. But as a new Christian, finding books to read in the library, they have everything. And I don't know why, but I remember reading Augustine just in the library stacks, pulling stuff off the shelf, reading some of his stuff on the Trinity or Confessions here and there. And I always had a, was always drawn to him from the beginning. He really is a compelling author. And uh, realistically, you know, you're probably not going to read 1,100 pages. But I would encourage you to pick up Confessions. It is a really compelling and interesting read. He's talking, you know, a guy in the fourth century, but it could be, sounds like it could be someone today in many, many regards. All right, well, that's a little bit about his life, a brief bit on his bio. Let's talk now about his teachings, what, what he did write and teach. He advanced Christian theology in numer- numerous areas. Our only concern, though, is the doctrine of salvation. He said a lot about the Holy Spirit, about the church. Hello? <laughs> But we really, everyone's putting their phone on silent now. <laughs> uh, we really only care for, uh, for our purposes when it comes to the doctrine of salvation. So, remember those terms. Monergism, synergism. Moner, mono, God working alone to, to bring about our salvation. Synergism, God working with man. Before Augustine, so after the apostles, that you have the first few centuries of the early church, a lot of people just defaulted to synergism. Most just believed, assumed that God works with man to bring about our salvation. It seems very natural. It's a natural thought. It sure feels to us like we bring about our own salvation. You know, I chose to believe. I chose God. I, I sought God. And most people want to think of themselves as having a hand to play in their own salvation like it's an accomplishment. And they can, they can choose their own destiny. It's a very natural thought. But Augustine came along as the first really strong voice to, to challenge that and to teach monergism, to, to write about monergism. He introduced the idea that human agency is entirely passive and that God's will determines everything in history and salvation, which is known as predestination, the uh, doctrine of predestination. Now, most people today associate the doctrine of predestination and an election with Calvin and Calvinism. But like I said, it's really more associated with Augustine. If you take it all the way back, Augustine started it off and Calvin himself recognizes that. Overall, Augustine emphasized the absolute supremacy of God and the absolute dependency of humans on the grace of God. So just to simplify, I'll give you four categories and we'll explore a snapshot of his teaching in each, in each subject. Just, and then we'll compare that later to Pelagius, the same four categories. So just consider his teaching on a few specific areas. Number one, original sin. Number one, original sin. Augustine advanced the idea of original sin Namely, that Adam's sin impacted and affected all humanity thereafter. He taught that everyone is infected by Adam's sin and therefore inherit a fallen sin nature. With the exception of Jesus, of course. People are so completely corrupted by the fall 
that their fallen natures are unable to obey the law or believe the gospel. So overall, he really advanced the notion of original sin from Romans 5 and, and, uh, and clarified it, many would say. So number one, original sin. Number two, human will. Human will. Augustine taught that sin severely impacts the will. He didn't believe the human will was lost or destroyed, but it was handicapped and weakened through sin. He believed that man lost the ability to freely choose good. He only has the ability to freely choose sin. And furthermore, sin, he taught, was hereditary, meaning it's like a genetic disease. You're born with it. It's passed down from one generation to the next after the fall of Adam. He never completely rejected human freedom, but he argued against any freedom that would thwart God's will. So in other words, man has will, God has will. God's will always wins. God's will always prevails. You'll never have any instance where human, a, a human's will will overturn or overpower or successfully oppose God's will. He, he didn't believe that. He, he saw no way in which a human's will could ever overpower God's will. John, question or comment? Like a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, where does the uh, doctrine of uh, total depravity of men come in? That was, that's a, we'll get into that in a few weeks. <coughs> when it comes to Augustine, that was tied in with his views of original sin. Original sin, Adam's sin, leads us to our total depravity. We inherit Adam's guilt and a sin nature from Adam, which is totally depraved. And the rest of that we'll say for what that means we'll say for when we study total depravity in, in a few weeks. Yeah. So that's um, human will. Number three, a third category of thought was God's grace. And you'll, you'll see a logical order to these. Thirdly, God's grace. Because of the effects of the fall, namely the impairment of our will, humans are totally dependent on God's grace for salvation from beginning to end. Because of our fallen human natures, we are lost, weak, enslaved. And therefore, he believed humans need divine intervention for salvation. He taught that God's grace was undeserved, essential, and particular. Meaning, when he says particular, meaning it was given only to those who were predestined to eternal life from before the foundation of the world. That's a a belief commonly associated with Calvinism, that unconditional election, but Augustine really said at first that God's salvation is given to those predetermined before creation based on not man's will, but God's will. Salvation is entirely a gift of God's grace based on his will, not man's. At least in number four, salvation is teaching on salvation. Salvation comes to man then as a free and unmerited gift of God. God gives us what we don't deserve through the death of Jesus. Salvation is based entirely on God's grace, not human merit. Only Christ's righteousness applied to a sinner can produce any grounds for the sinner's salvation. And that occurs through the agency of God's grace alone, which is another way of saying monergism. God brings that to bear on a sinner by himself. That the sinner is passive. God is the only active agent to bring about that salvation. It is monergism. So 
You see a, a logical flow to these teachings. You start with the sin problem from original sin, which we'll talk about in, in uh, three weeks or so, to depravity, to inheriting Adam's guilt and, and sin nature. That puts us in a very fallen situation. It limits our will. So human will, it's not destroyed, but it is enslaved. It is diminished. It is not free to choose God or to choose good. This then leads to God's grace. Namely, we need it. We, we really need God's grace to intervene. And therefore, salvation is entirely of God's grace. And God, God must do this work. We cannot. And so that, that's the core of his teaching. And that's why you'll often hear these called the doctrines of grace. Because they really champion God's grace as the determining reality of our salvation. Okay, so that, that's it for Augustine. That's a little bit of his life. A little bit of his teaching. Later we will see all this come back up again as much of what people still believe today, what largely we still believe today in, in many areas. Now let's switch gears and introduce you to Pelagius and some of his teaching. By the way, if you need more paper, uh, raise a hand. Maybe camera, you can run in my office, open my printer drawer and just get some blank paper if anyone needs some more for taking notes. Um, Pelagius. Pelagius was born in AD 360. He was born in Britain and became a monk focused on ascetic and moral living. And he traveled to Rome in AD 405. And when he got there, he was appalled at the moral laxity. He was disturbed by how so many of these Christians in Rome were living as hypocrites. They're not living morally pure lives. They just were, they were hypocrites. It's kind of interesting because... 1,100 years later, Martin Luther, as a monk, would travel to Rome. And he, too, would be appalled because they all were hypocrites. And that, excuse me, that led him to his reformation. Pelagius was likewise disturbed by what he saw in Rome. Also in Rome, he came to learn of this guy's teachings, Augustine's teachings. They were already there. They're already popular. Augustine was, was a force to be reckoned with already. And Pelagius came to believe that some of Augustine's teachings were to blame for the moral situation in Rome. Namely, if Christians believed they could not be pure unless God gave them holiness as a gift, we thought, well, it's no wonder they're living immoral lives. If you just have to sit around and wait till God zaps you and and makes you holy, well, of course, they're going to be hypocrites. That's what he reasoned. Side note. That's a misunderstanding of Augustine's theology. But that same objection is today still leveled against Calvinism. Namely that if if all that stuff is true, God's sovereignty stuff, then it's going to lead to lawlessness, to what's called antinomianism. Just you're going to be lawless and morally indifferent. That's what people still say against Calvinism today. And we find that's, that's, that's actually an ancient objection. Although untrue, we'll save that for later. So Pelagius came into conflict with Augustine in Rome, his teachings in Rome, and he started teaching against what Augustine was saying. So now from Pelagius's life, let's talk about Pelagius's teaching, what he believes. Whereas Augustine championed monergism, Pelagius championed synergism, and really to the extreme. He believed greatly in free will and human capability. He believed humans are not limited by the fall in any way, 
or that they have any sort of sin nature, but they're completely capable on their own to live sinless lives. Christians can choose to obey God all the time if they want to. Sin is always a willful choice. and It's not something they're bound to do. So that's an overview. Let, let me go back over the same four categories as we did with Augustine to give you his snapshot of what he taught regarding these issues. So again, back to number one, original sin. Pelagius on original sin. Pelagius completely rejected the notion of original sin. He denied that Adam's sin affects us in any way. He taught there's no connection between us and Adam's fall other than he was a bad example. That's it, though. Furthermore, he believed Adam did not pass on to his posterity any sort of fallen or corrupt nature. We're not sinners because of Adam. We don't inherit a sin nature because of Adam. None of that stuff is true, he taught. He reasoned that if people cannot help but sin until they receive God's grace, how could God condemn them for such sins? If if people are enslaved to sin because of some inherited nature, how could God condemn them, he thought. Rather, sin is always a matter of willful choice where one could do otherwise. That's how he believed God could hold you accountable. That you have a choice. You either can sin or not. You, You either choose to sin or you choose not to sin in every case. And that's why God can hold you accountable because you chose to do evil and it was always your choice. Yeah, Kathy? I'm mistaken. Or is that Adam's sin not affecting everybody? That doesn't agree with what the Bible says. By the way, when you guys ask questions, remind me to repeat it because I am trying to record these on my phone, which probably won't pick up your voices, so I need to repeat all these questions. So yeah, Kathy said... You're saying that he says that Adam's sin does not affect. Yeah, so his... Yeah, well, we'll get there. Slow down. Slow down. Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll get there shortly. So her basic question was a clarification. So Pelagius taught that Adam's sin doesn't affect us at all. Yes, that's what he taught. She then said, that's not biblical. And I said, just wait. Just wait. We'll get there. So, yeah, we will get there. No, it is not biblical. We'll see in shortly how Augustine himself responded to that. And then we'll obviously dive into the Bible in the weeks to come to find that, yes, Adam's sin did, does affect us. So just hold, hold on to that. I'm just curious if he didn't read the Bible at all. No, he did. He did. Um, but you see a lot of human reasoning, which so it goes with a lot of theologians, where the Bible's authority, but some more human reasoning gets in there and, and edges itself in and, and changes things. Yeah, before I forget the question. Um, during this time... With Augustine and so on, uh, how did the, the Eastern Church relate to this? Eastern Church, I'll, I'll point out that later, where the Church at large, Eastern Church, um, Eastern Church is always much more synergistic. And later, what? Hold on to that question. The question was, how did the Eastern Church relate to this? The short answer: they were they're always more synergistic. But I'll address that in a little bit. So I'll answer your question in a little bit. Is there a question over there? No. Okay, so let's keep going. So uh, regarding original sin, yes, he did not believe Adam's sin impacted us really at all. Secondly, human will, the second category of his teaching, human will. Pelagius taught that man's will was not bound to sin or affected by the fall, but was completely free. So your will not affected by the fall, totally free. 
since Adam didn't pass along any sort of fallen or evil nature, he believed we still have the same freedom that Adam had before the fall. Pelagius believed every infant was born in the same state as Adam before the fall, so morally neutral, totally free to choose good, to choose evil, and so forth. Every person is therefore free to keep the law of God perfectly or to obey the gospel. You have the ability to do that if you wanted to do it. His whole reasoning, and this is where human reason gets into play, if God commanded us to do something, we must therefore have the ability to do it. Otherwise, why would God command it? How could he command it? How could he hold us accountable for breaking it? So, for example, God commands us to obey his law perfectly, right? So he reasoned, we must therefore be able to obey the law perfectly. The whole notion of being unable because of the fall, he rejected that reasoning. We must be able to obey. God told us to do it. He wouldn't tell us to do something we're not able to do, right? That, that was his reasoning. So that's secondly, human will. Number three, God's grace. God's grace. Pelagius believed in the necessity of God's grace for salvation, but he understood grace differently. He didn't believe God's grace was special, but rather natural. In other words, God's grace is kind of like what we might define as common grace today. It's what God has already given to all people through their natural endowments. The only special grace God gave, according to Plagius, was the Bible. So together with man's conscience plus the Bible, special revelation, that's all the grace God's going to give. And that's all the grace you need. You've got the Bible, so you've got, you know, he still believed you need to believe in Jesus and all that. So you've got God's revelation, you have his plan of salvation, you have your brain, your conscience, your human faculties. That's all you need. God's already given you the grace you need, and you're good to go. Nothing else is needed. God does not need to directly intervene into a man's heart to save him. That's what he taught. So God's grace understood differently than many would today. Lastly, number four, salvation. Pelagius taught that salvation is found within humans. We, we do the work. Being a moralist, he found the grounds of justification being our own merit. Seeing that he understood God's grace differently, in essence, Pelagius taught justification on the basis of works and keeping the law. It, it's not hard to say that it boils down to justification or salvation by, by works, by keeping the law. He believed you could perfectly obey the law and that you would be justified by perfectly obeying the law. Okay, so there you have now a little bit on Augustine, a little bit on Pelagius. You can see how they differ. Joey? Um, I, I don't know. The question was, did he reject the notion of Christ's death as being necessary for salvation? Um, I, I don't know if I can answer that accurately. I'd have to study more on, on his key beliefs. I would think that he believed Christ's death was necessary for salvation. But as we will see, uh, so the problem with Pelagius, we don't have too many of his actual writings. All we have is, because he will find later, he was deemed a heretic. And so not much of, not a ton of what he wrote survived. What we have is mostly what Augustine wrote against him. So we kind of 
paint the picture of him based on Augustine's response and other people's response to him. So it's, it's kind of hard because we have like a negative impression right. view, if you know what I'm saying. Augustine would later argue, as I'll say shortly, that if what Pelagius says is true, Augustine argues, well, then Christ died needlessly. <coughs> what, what do you need his death for? <laughs> so when it comes to what he taught, I, I don't know. So I can't directly answer the question. But I would agree with Augustine that if all that's true, why did Jesus die? But that, I think, ties into why, as we'll shortly see, he was condemned a heretic. It really does make Christ's death in vain. And many reasons, it's just so clearly not what the New Testament teaches, salvation by grace through faith, apart from the works of the law. Yeah. Okay. So, let's see. Let's get into now. We've got to keep going here. i got a little bit more to go. Um, that's a bit on Augustine, a bit on Pelagius. Now let's, let's do one more cycle, and I'll take you through Augustine's rebuttal. So how it worked, Augustine, his early life, middle life, he was always divided, devoting himself in his writings to, to tackling heresy and battling it and winning. So early on, he, he tackled a lot of heresy. Pelagius came on the scene, started writing against him. So really the latter portion of his life, Augustine devoted to fighting against Pelagianism, his teachings, and dismantling it through scripture. So a lot of it reiterates what he had taught before, but let's take another cycle through now what Augustine wrote to rebut Pelagius's teachings, which he viewed as false and dangerous. Pelagianism amounts to salvation by works, and through his writings we have a record of what Augustine said in response. And it, it's useful to study his response. One, it gets us more familiar with this debate because echoes of this debate still exist today. And it helps us learn more about, excuse me, the view of monergism, which is what Augustine championed. So let's once again go through those four categories. This time, Augustine's rebuttal. They're not going to sound terribly different, but he uh, elucidates them. Number one, original sin. So he went on to emphasize more that all people, they're already guilty on account of Adam's sin. He clarified that a sin guilt and a sin nature are passed down from Adam, which makes all people at birth already unclean and condemned. You're born in a state of being unclean and therefore separate from God. This is why he taught Jesus had to be born a virgin. As a side note, as a result of this fall, man's depravity is total and humans are free to sin, but they're not free not to sin. Just think on that. You're free to sin, but you're not free not to sin. In other words, the fall limited our ability. We no longer have the ability in our fallen natures not to sin. We no longer have the ability to choose God or to please God because of the effects of the original sin of original sin and the fall. Again, I'll say... I know we're not doing Bible verses tonight. I'm giving you the historical picture first. All of this stuff we'll be studying in detail later. So again, just wait a couple weeks on that. So that was his rebuttal on original sin. He, he just further clarified how Adam's sin affects us with Scripture, which we'll get into in a couple weeks. Next, human will, the subject of human will. In a way, it comes down to definition. Just for the fun of it, how would you try defining free will? How would you define free will? Just take a stab. It's, it's philosophical. So there's no wrong answer, right? So how would you define free will, Janet? Yeah, my heart's desire. Okay, your heart's desire. Doing what you desire. Very good. And anyone think of a, a different or another definition? Uh, unencumbered choice. 
Okay, so you, you're being truly free to choose where you're not influenced in any way. You have an unenhin- unencumbered, unhindered choice. Okay, good. Any others? I think that we're totally depraved and we have no way of working out our own salvation. Yeah, that's true, Joe. Um, put yourself in Adam's shoes before the fall who had this free will. How would you define that free will? Any, any other want to take a stab? No guilt after you, after you made a choice. Okay, so after you make a choice, you're free of some of the guilt of the consequences? I, I guess, yeah. And just as Jesus Christ, uh, he himself said that no one could come to God except through him. That's right. You cannot go to him by yourself. Yeah, certainly after the fall, we believe our will has been affected and limited. Uh, but we're, first, you'll see where I'm going with this in a second. I'll go one more. Joey? Uh, uh, I think a more influenced by Edward's definition, I'm going to paraphrase, mind choosing what is most desirable at that moment in time. Yeah, that's kind of similar to what Janet said, and that's good. So there's two ways to define it. Uh, no one got... Pelagius' definition, which is the ability to do otherwise. You're free in a choice when you have the ability, and keyword ability to do otherwise. That's how he defined free will, the ability to do otherwise. So a person is only truly free if he has the ability to do otherwise. So an example, you're at a pool party, and you have the choice to sit out or go swimming. But let's pretend you don't know how to swim, so you do not have the ability to swim. Therefore, you choose to sit out. Well, Pelagius would say that's not a free choice because realistically, you only have one option. Your only option is to sit out. You can't choose to swim because you don't know how to swim. Since you don't have the ability to choose otherwise, your choice was not free. That makes sense? So that's how he defined free will. Augustine defined free will differently. He never eliminated human will but sought bound and constrained by sin. He defined free will, though, as doing what you want to do, which is pretty much what Janet and Joey said in in different terms. Free will is defined as doing what one wants to do. So long as a person is acting according to their desires, your will is free. You are acting according to what your heart wants to do. That's a free choice. So if you're at the pool party and you choose to sit out, or rather you choose to sit out because you want to sit out, Augustine would say, even though you don't have the ability to swim, your choice is still free because you're acting according to your desires. Nobody made you do it. You're doing what you wanted to do. That was your choice, and you wanted to do it. You have no desire to swim. In fact, you hate swimming. And therefore, you freely chose to sit out. He would say that's still a free choice. Accordingly, Augustine saw our human wills and desires as corrupted by the fall, such that we no longer have the ability to choose God or not to sin. But he taught we can still be held accountable for our sin because we're still acting according to our desires. Even though we don't have the ability to do otherwise, namely not to sin, God can still hold us accountable for our sins. Pelagius taught that would be unfair. But Augustine taught, no, it's still fair. Why? Because even though you you don't have the ability to do otherwise, i.e. to be sinless, you're still doing what you want to do. You're still choosing sin because you you want to sin. You love sin. You're enslaved to it. It's your master. And it's your choice. And so God can still justifiably condemn. Side note, this is how any notion of 
free will is compatible with any notion of determinism. Determinism states that all actions are predetermined by an outside force. So when you sin, for example, even though it's wrong, God already knows what you're going to do, and in a way he's planned what you will do. And so you may say, how can, therefore, you be held guilty if, if it's already predetermined? Augustine would say, you're still held guilty because you did what you wanted to do. You didn't know it was predetermined. You didn't, no one made you do it. You, you chose to do it. Uh, and so you're still accountable. You sinned willfully. You acted according to your desires. And this is how many today still reconcile a God who's sovereign over anything with humans who are still responsible for sin. Keep in mind, all this stuff, especially when we get into the, the nature of the will, we'll get back to again. So even if some of this is going over your head now, just stay with us for the long haul and hopefully it'll all start to click. The more you hear stuff, the more it sinks in, the more it becomes familiar. So stay with me. Tim? Uh, I, I bring me to the thought that why there's so many prisons that are full of people is because they chose to violate the Ten Commandments, basically. That's why they're full. Yeah, you know, people are held accountable for their sin today and, and, and their choices have consequences and so um, yeah people people choose to sin yeah. alright let's keep going here and try and wrap up with Augustine's rebuttal that's where we are so we talked about his rebuttal to original sin how he pushed that forward in man's will thirdly God's grace given this view of our limited ability to do good or choose God Augustine taught further God's grace it's it's absolutely necessary for salvation. He taught that man is so utterly depraved that unless God gave uh, the gift of faith by grace, man would never even think of choosing God. So he, he took it further that even our own faith is a gift that if God didn't give, nobody would ever even think of choosing God. It's entirely of grace, which leads to number four, salvation. He taught righteousness is only attained by God's free gift of faith through grace, apart from the works of the law. Sounds a lot like what the reformers later rediscovered. Augustine taught this goes into what Joey was saying earlier. If a person could obtain righteousness by their own free will and nature, apart from God's intervening grace, if a person could just perfectly obey the law, then Christ died in vain. His death was needless. But what's the point? Why not just leave people and let them strive to obey the law? If people can perfectly obey the law and be sinless, Christ died in vain. So, in a real nutshell, that's how Augustine rebutted, and with scriptural support, attacked Pelagius' views, which he thought were, again, dangerous and wrong. What was the verdict of the church? How did others respond? Well, on several occasions, Pelagius was accused of heresy for his teachings. At first, he was acquitted of heresy by a synod of bishops in Palestine in AD 415. But later he was condemned as a heretic by the Bishop of Rome in 417 and 4, excuse me, 418. Pelagius died in 423, but his teachings were condemned again as heretical in 431 at the Council of Ephesus. It was called the Council of Ephesus. Augustine successfully dismantled the arguments of Pelagius he pretty much drove a spike through the heart of Pelagius' teachings. 
And for the most part, the church universally, East and West, rejected Pelagius's views. Pelagius was synergism to the extreme, and he was universally condemned, East, West. After Augustine was done with them, basically, nobody was claiming to really be with Pelagius. No one's serious after that. Pelagianism was, was, was gone. However, even though the church came together to reject Pelagianism, not everyone was satisfied with the replacement, which was Augustinianism or, or Augustine's teachings, because he was synergism, or rather monergism to the extreme, very heavy-handed with predestination, God's determining things, and so forth. A lot of the people were uncomfortable with that. They wanted some sort of, you know, like middle ground between the two. And this is where semi-Pelagianism was born. You heard of that? Semi-Pelagianism? I'll, I'll, get, I'll be brief with this. We're running out of time, but we'll make it. A quick introduction to semi-Pelagianism. John Cassian, who's known as the founder of semi-Pelagianism, he was a contemporary of Augustine. He died two years after Augustine. He had a monastery in Marseille. It was home to theologians who strongly opposed Augustine's monergistic view of salvation. They had a, a very synergistic approach, but they wanted to distance themselves from Pelagius because he was being condemned by everybody, and, and they didn't agree with him either. And so a middle ground was sought where man, with his own will and power, takes the first step to God in conversion, which then invites God to intervene. So this will be quick, but let's one more time go through those four points when it comes to semi-Pelagianism. Number one, original sin. Contrary to Pelagius, they believed that Adam's sin did affect all people in some way. They affirmed original sin. They believed human nature was corrupted by sin. So they actually, in large part, agreed with Augustine that, yeah, that the fall did affect people. There is such a thing as original sin, contrary to Pelagius. Number two, man's will. However, they believe sin did not destroy man's free will. Augustine taught the fall limited our will. We've lost that truly free will. Our will is bound. Semi-Pelagian said, no, no, it's not. We still have free will. Man still has the ability to freely choose God. In fact, they taught man must choose God first of his own free will to save himself. Humans must take the first step toward God, and that invites God to respond with his saving grace. So it's, it's kind of a, what's well, a semi-approach, right? We take the first step, then God comes and, and takes us home. And so lastly, number three and number four, put them together, God's grace and salvation. They believe that God's grace was essential to salvation. Yes, they would affirm salvation by grace. That's good. But they held that God's grace was universal for all men alike, all who would take the first step toward him. So again, God's grace has been given to everybody in the same way already. So it still, it still makes the deciding factor in a person's salvation their own will in choosing God. Who goes to heaven? Who goes to hell? Well, it, it, really, it really comes down to man's will in choosing God. You've got to take the first step, and then God will meet you with his saving grace. So there's a little snapshot on semi-Pelagianism. What was the church's verdict on this? Well, semi-Pelagianism was condemned at the Synod of Orange in AD 529. The church was still uncomfortable 
with humans making the first step toward God without special grace prompting it. But they still found themselves in a bind because many still didn't like Augustine's predestination. Now, by this time, getting the 500s, the church was becoming more and more of what we think of as the Roman Catholic Church. And still today, Catholics do not teach that humans must take the first step. They believe that God's grace is necessary. But that Synod of Orange, it left the doors open for humans to freely cooperate with God's grace. This led later Catholics to include a system of meritorious works as necessary proofs of grace, which later become akin to to works. Even later, they included that man's free will must cooperate with grace to attain a complete salvation. Not going to get too much into Catholic theology right now, but it eventually found its way back to synergism. After 529, semi-Pelagianism was marked as heretical on paper, but really most most Catholics essentially believed it and practiced it. Throughout the Middle Ages, Catholic monks and priests practiced a kind of semi-Pelagianism, even though it wasn't labeled that way. As we'll see next week in part two of this lesson, Calvinism clearly descended after the Middle Ages. Calvin, Calvin showed up on the scene. Calvinism clearly descended from Augustine. And Arminianism itself descended from semi-Pelagianism. Now, that being said, many Armenians today want to distance themselves from the title of semi-Pelagianism. That's because they, too, deny that humans can take the first step toward God. They believe that God must initiate that step. However, they still believe that God gives that prevenient grace to all people. All people are enabled to take that first step. So, in effect... The determining factor is still man's will, but we'll get to that in time. Now, throughout the Middle Ages, until the Reformation, the Catholic Church held to a de facto synergism. It had won the day, so to speak, more or less. God and man must cooperate in salvation. Remember, that's what this is all about, responsibility. Is it God alone, the active agent, or is God and man cooperating in our salvation? But come the Reformation... Starting in 1517, officially with Romans, or rather with Luther's study of Romans and declaration of his 95 theses and stuff. By the way, this year is the 500 year anniversary of that event, the start of the Reformation. As the reformers came, one thing they all agreed on, which was monergism, the first and second waves of the reformers. We're talking about Luther, Calvin, Beza, Zwingli. They all stood united on monergism, that system of theology that, no, this work, first off, salvation is not of works, it's of grace, and it's God's grace alone. And as they sought to reform and eventually break away from the Catholic Church, go back to Scripture alone, it's quite interesting that all the early reformers found Scripture to teach quite clearly monergism, that God works and he works alone to bring about our salvation. There would be one person in particular who would teach much of this. A whole system would be, would be named after him, namely Calvin and Calvinism. We'll do that next week. So that'll, that'll do it for tonight. That's uh, a snapshot of the early debate 
Augustine, Pelagius, they, they said it all in some regards centuries before it was said by Calvin Arminius. Hopefully that, really the goal for tonight, just to get your feet wet, get you into the discussion, hearing some of the terms, hearing some of the names, hearing some of the theology, and although it's a lot, this is a big survey, uh, you'll see all these concepts popping up again and again and again. And as we get into scripture, that's when it should make sense. That's where really when we want it to make sense. So, so stay with us till we get to that point. Hopefully this helps you, though, to get started as a, a framework, a foundation. We'll come back next week with a part two, giving you all the background on Calvin and Arminius and how we got to today, the debate as it stands today. And from then, it's Bible study from there on out. Sound good? Don? When you say semi teaching came about... Based, to simplify it, based on the belief that there is some inherent residual good in man to choose. Yeah. Okay. Was that a question? No, I, I'm just saying, wouldn't that no, pretty much sum it up? Okay. Because that's really what they believe. They don't, uh, you know, they don't believe that we aren't tainted. They just believe that there's some inherent residual Yeah, they do. So the the comment he made was the semi-Pelagians believe that there's still some residual inherent good in man to choose. Yes, that the will has not been demolished by the fall. It still exists and it still is free to choose. In fact, it must choose. uh, Take that first step. uh, To a large degree. Yeah, semi-Pelagianisms, which again, many Armenians today would reject that. We'll get into that distinction later, though. Yeah. Ed? And now, you, would you say that that has to do what he said uh, directly uh, relating to the so-called common grace? God provides a common grace to all men, and then they have the ability to choose. Yeah. So the question is: Is that equivalent to a common grace? They would say no. We'll talk about it later. So I'll, I'll kind of table that till we study grace, uh, irresistible grace versus prevenient, prevenient grace. Rather, it is a grace. They believe it. It is applied to all. They think it can be resisted. We. It's different from common grace, though. So we'll get to that distinction when we get to it. Although it's common in the sense that it's given to all. If that's how you define common grace, yeah. then yes, it's a common grace. Well, uh, uh, versus. Effectual grace. Or special grace. A grace that intervenes and accomplishes something specific that that cannot be resisted, that that makes a change. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, my ears just comped out when you gave the definition of determinism. Determinism is is the belief where everything that happens has been predetermined. You know, all choices, all decisions have been predetermined. Whether it's through foreknowledge, things have been foreseen or actually predetermined. Uh, now, there's a spectrum of determinism, uh, and we reject the end of that spectrum where God makes us do everything. Even though he's ordained everything, we do still do as we do, and we do as we will, uh, even if our wills are bound. Uh, anyway, yeah. Okay, Joe? Um, I remember this text, uh, uh, 1 chapter 2, verse 27. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, 
and you have no need for anyone to teach you. He's talking about the human to teach you. Right. But as his anointing teaches you and about all things, and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you abide in him. So if you keep this counsel, then you will be uh, hearing nothing but the truth. The Holy Spirit will give you the truth. He'll eliminate you the true truth. Yeah. And I talking from my own experience. Yeah, amen to that. So Joe just read first John two, twenty seven, twenty eight, speaking of the Holy Spirit's illumination to guide us into the truth and and amen to that. You know, we, we need the Holy Spirit to illumine us. We need to be humble and, and free from sin that we're not clouded. And so we'll end on a note of that prayer. Let's let's finish our time in prayer and uh, continue to intercede for the Spirit as we enter into this discussion to illumine us to the truth as well. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for our time this evening and beginning this study into the doctrines of grace. And we pray that over time, as we get into your word, like Joe read, you do illumine us and, and bring us into a knowledge of the truth. Keep us free from sin that can cloud our minds or our judgments, any preconceived notions or predispositions we might have as to this or that, Lord. We simply want to submit to what your word says. So we pray you reveal it clearly to us and show us the impact as well. Your sovereignty and our salvation is, is so important, Lord, and as, as we learn more, may I pray we grow in our worship. And for now, bless us as we depart, and uh, may this be a profitable time together. We can dive into your word and, and come to know and worship you better. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, uh, we'll... <clears throat>